But this morning, we are in um, a series through the book of Galatians, and we're in our third week, and the passage we're in today in Galatians chapter 2 is going to take us to a meeting, an important meeting that happened 2,000 years ago. You're like, what do I care about a meeting that happened 2,000 years ago? Well, it turns out you care a lot. Uh, because it impacted you and I, and it impacts us continually till through this day. It had huge consequences for us. And as we'll see, uh, in this meeting, God actually protected you and I and uh, protected our church and our freedom and allowed for our unity. So with that, I'm just going to dive right in. Can we pray? And then we'll just get right into the text. Let me pray. Uh, Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us. Thanks for, as we've seen, the, the good things you're doing in our church. Uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, you continue uh, to work and move among people here, that you would protect us and uh, guard us from the evil one who would love to tear down the things that you're building and doing. And, um, of course, too, he'd love to uh, uh, whisper things in our ear like uh, believing, simply believing isn't enough. That we've got to measure up somehow to be pleasing to you. And it's, it's simply not true. We're called to live lives of holiness, but it's out of the identity you give us, Lord. It's not to earn your favor. That's freely given. So let that be clear today. And uh, help me to teach it well. And uh, we pray all this then in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we pick things up in Galatians again today, we're starting in the middle of Paul telling his story. You remember he writes this letter to these churches that he had planted in an area known as Galatia. And in writing this letter, one of the things that was happening in these churches is uh, they started off strong, uh, but then there were people who came in from the outside, uh, identified as, as Judaizers, who came in and said, okay, yeah, we're Christians too, but if you're really gonna please God, uh, you don't just trust Jesus, you also have to keep all these rules. And if, if there's going to be this test for us even to get along, if you don't follow these rules, then I'm, I'm sorry, it's just, it's not going to work for you and I, or for you and us, and even for you and God, for that matter. Um, and so they came in, and Paul writes to them, just furious that, uh, that this has happened. He's furious with the people who had come in with these extra burdens that he was laying, that they were laying on the church. And he was upset with the Galatian Christians because they were buying into these lies, and so immediately, one of the things he does is he starts to establish his authority as an apostle. Because likely what's happening, see, here's, here's the problem with letters in the New Testament. You're getting one side of the conversation, right? So some of the, some of the things he's addressing, we have to read between the lines and, and figure out what's going on and look at other passages like in Acts, which we'll do a little bit today. And, and what exactly was Paul addressing? Well, it turns out the thing he was addressing in these letters is, uh, in part, when these Judaizers came in, they were saying, yeah, Paul told you this, but guess what? We just came from Jerusalem and we were with the apostles like Peter, James, John. You heard of those guys, right? Uh, you read about them, heard about them. Um, here's what, that's, this is, see, Paul doesn't have the full story. He doesn't, he doesn't have the whole thing going. So it's Jesus plus all of this. And uh, so Paul begins to establish his authority as an apostle to say, no, uh, 
I do have authority to teach these things. I received this not from men, but from Jesus himself. And so Paul begins telling his story. And he starts in Galatians, we read this last week, uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, he says, am I seeking now to, to win the approval of, of God or of men? Because if I was seeking the approval of men, then I couldn't be a servant of Jesus Christ. And uh, so Paul then begins to tell his story of, of how he received the gospel. And you can learn this if you go over to the book of Acts and read in chapter 9 that Paul uh, was in Jerusalem and he leaves Jerusalem on his way to the city of Damascus. And I think I might have a, a map here to show you. We'll see if that's working. Uh, here's mo the modern day area. So Turkey, Israel, Jordan, Iraq. And we're going to zoom in on kind of the area Paul is talking about here. And he begins in Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, he makes a journey. Uh, that's kind of backwards. Everybody goes to Damascus. And he, he makes his way up to Damascus. And the reason he's going to Damascus is to persecute Christians, to continue uh, being a terrorist to those who are following the way of the Lord Jesus. And so he gets there, but on, or before he gets there, excuse me, uh, Jesus appears to him on the road. And Paul is blinded, and he falls down on the road. And uh, Jesus says, uh, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul goes into town, and after three days, a man by the name of Ananias prays with him. Scales, uh, like something like scales fall from his eyes, and he began to see the truth. And understand, no, uh, Jesus really is the Messiah. He is, he's my only hope. He's, he's the Savior. And so Paul becomes one of the people that he was trying to kill. He becomes a Christian. Well, as he writes in, in, uh, in chapter 1, he said, uh, Now you've heard of my former life, how I persecuted the church, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. He was incredibly smart. Um, but I was on my way, and God was pleased to reveal his son to me. And he says, And after that, I didn't consult immediately with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. He says in verse 17, I actually went away into Arabia. And Arabia would uh, likely be the area of Jordan. That Paul went down into Jordan, and he stayed there for about three years. It was a populated area. Uh, some uh, try to make the argument, well, you know, so Paul, see here, it's a case for, you know, biblical training and for seminary. You know, Paul, Paul uh, went away for three years to study and uh, before he ever did anything in ministry. And I, I don't think that's really the case. I think it's much more likely that Paul went there and he continued to learn, but he went and he was preaching the gospel and doing ministry. And then after three years, he returns back to Damascus. He says in verse 18, and he, he makes a short jaunt to Jerusalem uh, to visit Peter, Cephas, and, and remained with him for 15 days. That's not a long time, is it? So it was three years after uh, Paul became a Christian that he ever made his way to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles at the time. He had received this gospel not from other men, but from Jesus himself. And uh, we're going to see he ends up coming back again uh, to Jerusalem in a little while in chapter 2. But, but when he gets there, uh, what he learns is that uh, the gospel I was preaching and the gospel they're preaching that we each received from Jesus are the same gospel. It was confirming to him. So he was there, he says in chapter one, we read last week for 15 days, and he saw none of the other apostles but Peter and James, the Lord's brother. Now there's Jesus' little brother, James. 
And he says, in what I'm writing to you, before God, I don't lie. Then he says, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So he went north. And eventually he makes his way around to uh, Antioch is up in that region. So is Paul's hometown of Tarsus. And he would have been in those areas at the time. And he said, and I was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea, to the, the churches around Jerusalem. They still didn't even know who I was other than that I used to persecute them. And now they had heard that I had uh, become a follower of Jesus. And so they were praising God because of me. Well, Paul's continuing his story now in chapter 2. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas and taking Titus along with me. So 14 years now it's been since Paul's conversion, and he's going back up to Jerusalem for only the second time. And he's taking along with him a guy by the name of, and we can go ahead and go ahead and move on to the scripture passages now. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, he, he takes along with him a guy by the name of Barnabas, whose name means a son of encouragement. He was uh, a friend of Paul's in ministry. He worked alongside him in ministry, encouraging him, working with him, uh, uh, pursuing the gospel with him, preaching the gospel with him. But then he also takes this guy by the name of Titus. Titus was a young guy who ends up pastoring a church that Paul will write a letter to later. Uh, the book of Titus is Paul's letter to a young, young guy by the name of Titus, telling him how to do ministry and, and how, to, how to lead a church. And uh, Paul takes Titus along with him, and Titus would have been from that area of Tarsus and Antioch. He was, as we're going to read here, he was a Greek. He wasn't Jewish, in other words. So he, he says, I went up, then verse 2, because of a revelation and I set before them. So, so first, first off, just notice why Paul goes up. Why did he go? Well, it was in response to a revelation from God externally. God revealed to him that he needed to go to Jerusalem. And we're going to see here in a moment, I think that revelation happens in Acts chapter 11. And I'll show you the corollary. Um, and then privately, though, when he gets there, he, he also appeared before those who, quote, Seemed influential. Who would seem influential in the church? The leaders would, wouldn't they? I mean, the, the leaders of the church there. So guys like Peter and James and John and the other apostles. And, but it's curious, Paul says they, they seemed influential. I think he's continuing to emphasize the fact that this gospel came not from them, Though they, they are influential and they seem influential, really they were influenced themselves by Jesus Christ and the gospel comes from Jesus. See, he said, uh, I went before them uh, and proclaimed, set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So here's some more motivation for Paul going back to Jerusalem. There seems to be a little fear, doesn't there? He's like, I'm going because of a revelation. And we're going to see that revelation was because of needs in the churches of Judea. But also because he was a little bit afraid. What was he afraid of? Was Paul afraid that maybe he wasn't really preaching the gospel? I don't think that was the case. I think what Paul was afraid of was of a major split in the church. Paul was afraid that... Uh, those Judaizers he was writing against who were coming into the churches of Galatia and adding burdens onto the people, 
I think he was a little bit nervous that maybe the leaders there in Jerusalem would choose to side with them. And if they did, you know what Paul would do? He would likely have to split and we wouldn't have a unified Christianity today. There would be a, a, a weird two, two-headed monster of those who, who put their faith fully in Jesus Christ and then those who it's Jesus plus. Now in reality, some of those things have sprung up over time anyway, but that's what I think he's trying to avoid. See, he, he didn't want them to be, he, Paul's preaching freedom there's freedom in Christ. And he didn't want them saying, yeah, but there's freedom, but you need to do this as well. See, look at verse three. Even Titus, who was with me, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So here's what Paul's saying. So I was, I was nervous. I didn't want to do all this in vain, teach you all these things, and then have them come in and destroy it. But here's the good news. We got there, and Titus, who isn't even Jewish, uncircumcised, they didn't add anything onto him. So these ones, the Judaizers are saying that I'm not in agreement with their gospel. Well, I took Titus, one of you, I took him with me and they didn't add anything onto him that he would have to do to be pleasing to God. Yet, he says in verse four, evidently there was still some division there. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we didn't yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, on the one side of this dispute then, at this, this meeting he goes to, you've got Paul saying, the gospel of faith in Christ is for people of all cultures. And it doesn't, there's nothing added on to it other than faith in Jesus. You got that? Faith alone. Sola fide, we saw last fall, right? In the five solas. On the other hand, we have his opponents claim, claiming uh, not, not all Jewish people are Christians, but all Christians need to become Jewish to really be a Christian. It's not just faith alone. It's faith plus becoming Jewish. And so if, if the Jewish church sided with, with that other group, uh, we'd have been in a lot of trouble. So this meeting affects you and I today. It gives us freedom. And there were even people who showed up at the time trying to impose these things. And Paul says that uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't submit to them for a moment. We submitted to God's word and the truth of the gospel. Now, let me keep reading this. And then we're going to talk about some outcomes of this meeting now that we've just kind of laid out what happened. He says again then, from those who seem to be influential... Uh, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Again, he's saying it this way because he's building on the argument he just made that it, it doesn't, from any culture, people can come to worship Jesus Christ. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, they didn't say, Paul, you're right, except uh, you're missing uh, these three things that people need to be doing. Paul's like, they didn't add anything to me. And in, uh, in response then to you who are Gentiles... In other words, anybody who's not Jewish. They didn't add anything. It was, it was faith alone in Christ alone. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been with the gospel to the circumcised, in other words, to the non-Jewish Gentiles and to the, the Jews, uh, for he who worked through Peter in his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars 
in other words, the main leaders of the church, when they perceived the grace given to me, that they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they uh, to the Jewish people. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now here's uh, some of the outcomes of this meeting. And this is really kind of the so what. Great, that's some interesting history, Josh, but you know, so what? I think I told you before I had a, had a prof in my preaching class at Moody. He'd sit in the back of the room and kind of gravelly voice and you'd get done and you knew it wasn't a very good, good, uh, good sermon if you heard him go, so what, from the very back. He's like, ah, that's great, good knowledge, but so what? Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the so what. Uh, there's two outcomes that come out of this meeting that are relevant to you and I, that, that are really the so what of the whole thing. One is personal, so there's going to be one of these that you can apply personally, and one that applies to all of us. So the first one that applies personally, the outcome of freedom. Because of what happened here, there's freedom in Jesus Christ. There's freedom in Jesus Christ. And that's a, that's, a, that's a huge thing. Paul's saying that the biblical gospel gives freedom while his opponents are, are preaching this idea of earn your salvation. See, the, that whole idea of earning your salvation doesn't lead to freedom, it leads to slavery. That's religion, friends. Religion says do all these things to get good enough to be right with God. Believe in Jesus is just one of the things that you have to do. And it's never enough. It leads to slavery. It's a burden. In fact, Paul says earlier, a couple weeks ago we saw in chapter 1, that it's, uh, it's adding to the gospel. And really what it is then is it's a false gospel. It's really destroying the truth of the gospel. That it's faith alone which leads to freedom. Well, what kind of freedom are we talking about? Well, first off, the gospel leads to cultural freedom. Culturally, or you could say religiously too. See, a, a moralistic type of religion where it's do all these good works, it presses people to adopt specific rules and specific regulations for how they behave or how they dress or uh, where they work or uh, roles uh, in their family. It, it, it imposes these things onto people. Why? Why does it come up with all these rules? Well, think about it. If your salvation depends on obeying the rules, then you want the rules to be very specific. See, the, the moralistic religion, I'm just going to say religion, imposes all of these very specific rules. Do it this way. Uh, sing these songs. Talk like this. Dress like this. Do these things. And they like their rules to be very, very specific. Why? Because if your salvation depends on it, I'll say it again, if your salvation depends on following the rules, don't you want to know what the rules are? And sadly, there, there are many churches, and uh, we, we need to pray that they would come to an understanding of God's freedom. I, I grew up in one where uh, it was follow all of these rules to be right with God. And you could check them off, so I feel okay. But the reality is all it does is lead to slavery. There's no joy in that. 
There's no freedom. You know, if you don't want, you know, vague rules like love your neighbor as yourself, that's way too hard. I can never possibly achieve that. I, I want, you know, stuff like don't, don't drink, don't go to movies, don't dance. That's what I want. Um, see, if the false teachers had had their way back here in Galatians chapter 2, uh, then uh, somebody uh, from a different cultural life would have to change their entire culture to become a Christian. Yet John tells us in Revelation that there'll be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation in heaven. If they had had their way, if the Judaizers had had their way, then uh, if, if somebody was an Italian or an African, they, they couldn't become a Christian without culturally first becoming Jewish. And that would go for you and I, too. See, this meeting had big implications for us, for our freedom, for your freedom. Now, it, it's, so it's cultural and religious freedom, but it's also emotional freedom. And this is really where maybe the rubber would hit the road for you personally. Anyone who believes that our relationship with God is based on uh, keeping up moral behavior, if that's what you think, you're on an endless treadmill of, of guilt and remorse and regret and fear. Let me say that again. If, if you believe that your relationship with God is based on keeping up moral behavior, you're on an endless treadmill of guilt and fear and insecurity. And you will totally be without joy. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't live a life that's honoring to the Lord and, and do things that are right, right, according to his word. What I'm saying is that your acceptance, your love by God is not based for you. By God is not based on you keeping those things. He chooses to love you. Uh, he chose to love you while you were still his enemy. You didn't do anything for him to love you. Because no offense, but there is nothing lovely about me and nothing lovely about you in his eyes other than uh, that you bear his image and be in your sin, uh, you're, you're vile. And so when Jesus covers you with his righteousness, God loved you even uh, in, in your vile wickedness and mine, and he gave his son for you. It was his love, not your goodness. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't know if I said it well, but that's, that's the point. So uh, you're not free from the moral law as a way to live, right? The Ten Commandments as a way to live, but you're free from it as a system of salvation. Does that make sense? There's great freedom in following Christ. Now, there's, so there's, that's that personal one, that personal outcome of this meeting where they didn't add anything on to Paul for the churches in Galatia and, and all the Gentile churches. But there's also a second outcome. And here's the second outcome, and that affects us as a group corporately, and that's the outcome of unity, of unity. Corporately, it's, it's unity. Now, here's what I mean by that. Uh, well, first up, you know, what does real Christian unity look like? And I'm going to give you three things that I think help us maybe define it. The first thing we can take away from this, this passage and really from all of Scripture is the thing that unifies us in, in the Lord Jesus Christ is, uh, and as people who are believers, is not the flavor of uh, Christian denominationalism or whatever else we're from, right? Whether it's Baptist or Lutheran or Methodist or Ephraim like we are, or 
uh, you know, uh, vineyard or Nazarene or church of God or missionary or whatever it is, right? Just throw them all out. That's not the unifying factor. The unifying thing is that all of those who are in Christ Jesus, the unity, our unity in the body of Christ is based on Jesus Christ and him alone. It's on Jesus Christ. Our, our, I'll give you an example here. From, this is from our statement of faith. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And they're united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ of which he, Jesus, is the head. In other words, he's the senior pastor. The local churches, or the church, capital C, is manifest in local churches whose membership should be comprised uh, only of believers, but here's the idea, all believers. The only thing that, that makes someone uh, part of the universal church is believing in Jesus Christ. It's not your ethnicity. It's not your background. It's not the rules you keep. It's not the rules you break. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. And friends, because of this, we have a great responsibility then to love people of all cultures and of all backgrounds the way that Jesus loves us. Have, have you noticed, like in our area, uh, I've noticed that I've been here 15 years, the demographics have changed in, in some big ways and continue to change in our area, doesn't it? Um, you know what saddens my heart a little bit? The demographics of our church haven't changed a whole lot with those changes. How are we doing at loving and bringing others in, even if they're culturally different than us? Because our unity isn't based on culture, is it? It's not based on, I'm from here, I'm from here, I speak this language, I speak this language. It's, it's in Jesus Christ and him alone. That's number one. Here's another issue of our unity in Jesus Christ. Uh, this is just kind of a, a pragmatic thing, and you've, you've heard me talk about this before, but I'm going to call it uh, your thing, my thing, and our thing. So if that's the theological side of unity, all who are in Christ, here's the pragmatic side. Because there's the theological side, but then there's also the side that, you know, Josh, that's great, but all of us are sinners. We're all pretty messed up, and like any good family, if uh, it's easy to fight with one another and not get along. Would you agree? Any good family that way? Nobody had any sibling rivalry growing up. It was just, just in Iowa, nothing in Indiana. Um, well, guess what the church is? The church is family. So the church is messy, isn't it? So one of the ways that we can uh, corporately maintain unity is to think of things in terms of your thing my thing, and our thing. And the way we find unity is in that area of our thing. So here's the thing. If you can't distinguish between your thing, my thing, and our thing, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be so frustrated with the church, specifically with ours, or you're going to burn yourself out trying to please everyone. Let me, let me explain what I'm talking about. Um, my thing and your thing, either one, these are your personal interests. It's what you enjoy. It's what you like. It's even what you're passionate about. And your thing and my thing, they can be very, very good things. So here's some example. For some of you, the, the my thing is fishing. Anybody? Is fishing your thing? You're like, yeah, right down here. We got fishing. 
hunting. My thing is camping. My thing is baseball. My thing is a certain basketball team or a football team or a certain hockey team. My, my thing is gardening. Uh, my thing is uh, fill in the blank. Could be a lot of different things, right? Or it might be a cause. It might be a very good cause. My, my thing is I love helping these types of people. My thing is I enjoy serving in this type of ministry uh, or I, I enjoy helping these types of people or being involved in this place in culture. And my thing maybe is it's just you really love this particular neighborhood because that's where you're from, or you really love this particular type of food or this particular restaurant or this fill in the blank. If you want to know what my thing is for you, just look, what is it that you enjoy? What is it you appreciate? What is it that you give your time and money to? It will identify your thing. And it can be... I'm sure they're very good things. Here's how this relates to unity. Unity in the church gets disrupted and fights break out in our family when we try to make my thing our thing. And I try to make my thing your thing and you try to make your thing my thing. And you say, yeah, but my thing's a really good thing. I know, but it's your thing. It's your thing. It's not my thing. And if it becomes our thing, we're going to have no rest. And nobody's going to know what we're supposed to be doing or who we really are as a church body. So we have to distinguish what is your thing, what's my thing, and what's our thing. Well, here's, here's what, what is our thing. Well, our thing is the overall mission of our church. It's what we do together, corporately. And the reality is even different 110 groups can have their own our thing, but in terms of our church, our thing is we are sent to love people and to invite them to follow Jesus with us, no matter who they are, right? That's our thing, is making disciples, gathering together to be instructed by God's word, going out serving. So as a, as a leader, sometimes if... if uh, Here's the challenging thing. Many of you have your things and they're really good things, but we can't make everybody's thing our thing. Even if it's a really good thing because it disrupts unity for all of us. Does that make sense? So if sometimes if we say, no, we're not gonna do that or we're not going down that road or we're not uh, participating in that, we're not saying it's a bad thing. We're saying that's your thing. Go do it with passion, do it well. We're saying uh, there, there just isn't, um, it, it's not going to be our thing. We're going to bless you in it. Go do it. We're behind you. But we're not going to make your thing our thing. Does that make sense? Have I, said the, have I said that enough? I feel like I'm rhyming the whole time here and just saying the same thing over and over. But that's an issue of unity too. And then finally, notice what Paul says at the end here. He says, uh, the only thing uh, that they required of me is they asked us to remember the poor, and it was the very thing I was eager to do. Friends, unity in our church then is, is found in doing ministry together, in remembering the poor specifically. Uh, that, that shows up throughout Scripture that we're called uh, to, to remember the poor and, and love them. Um, 
Uh, Micah 6.8 comes to mind. He's told you what's good, that what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God, to, to care for the poor and the needy among you. Jesus says, when you do this, you're doing it unto me. Those are good things. And there's, there's those who are in need. I think this can extend out not just to the, um, those who are poor uh, uh, materially, but those who are poor in spirit. Who's hurting among you? How are you reaching out to them? Who's in need? Uh, maybe they don't need a check this week, but they need a friend. See, Paul says, that's the very thing I'm eager to do. In other words, the only thing they're adding to me is to live out this faith I'm proclaiming. When he went to Antioch, or when he went to Jerusalem, if you read at the end of Acts chapter 11, I think starting in verse 27, uh, it says that a prophet rose up and uh, proclaimed about a famine that was going to take place the, around the churches in Judea. And uh, Paul decided, Paul, uh, Barnabas and others, they decided we need to send help to them. And so that's what compelled Paul to go to Jerusalem for this meeting in the first place. And so they, they brought gifts to help. And then they said, the only thing we want you to do is to help the poor. And Paul's like, that's a, well, good news. That's why we showed up to begin with was to help the poor. And here's what's curious, that the church was so good at this in those days. In the fourth century, the fourth century Roman emperor Julian, there's a, here's this quote from him I found this week. He said, nothing has contributed to the progress. Now, he wasn't a Christian. He says, to the progress of the superstition of Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Isn't that a powerful statement? He's like, you know, what's, you know what's caused the spread of Christianity more than anything? Is Christians caring for the poor. In other words, live out your faith, friends. Live out your identity. Do those good works, but do it because you know you're loved. Not to earn God's favor or to earn his love. And as we do this, we have freedom individually. Uh, there isn't anyone we wouldn't invite. All people matter. Emotionally, we aren't bound as slaves to some uh, list of things I have to accomplish to be pleasing to God. But it also creates unity in our church. Unity in Jesus Christ. Unity in doing our thing of doing ministry and introducing people to Jesus. So with that, let me pray. We're going to sing, take our offering, and call it a morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus and uh, for the unity that you provide to us through him, for the freedom you give us in him. Um, Lord, thank you uh, for that meeting that Paul was at, that there was nothing added to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus, truly, you paid it all. There's nothing I, I can do to earn my salvation. There's nothing I can do to lose it. It's, it's simply me believing and trusting you. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who've maybe uh, never trusted you. Uh, if, if that's you and you're hearing that, it's very simple. If you would simply uh, pray from your heart to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've been trying to do it all myself. And I realize I have no hope on my own apart, Jesus, from you. 
And so, Jesus, I trust you and you alone as my Savior. The Bible says if you believe that, confess that with your mouth, uh, repent of your sin, it's all combined in this idea of belief and trust that you will be saved. It's that simple. If you haven't done that, I would encourage you to. And Lord, as we give and as we sing now and wrap up our morning, might you be honored and might uh, we experience, Jesus, uh, a greater knowledge of your freedom and of your unity together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.